Our mission at Crosspoint Baptist Church, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We're going to continue in our series in, the, in the, the book of Acts. And we've been calling this series the action of the church because that's exactly what this book is about. It's what, really what God was doing through the church, the very first church. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 34. And I'm calling this sermon, The Unknown God. Well, we're in the middle right now of Paul's second missionary journey. Okay, and you, maybe you're with us on the first trip. Paul was took the very first Christian mission trip. It was it was him and another guy by the name of Barnabas, and they went to basically modern day Turkey and they shared the gospel with people that had never heard the gospel, the good news before. And it was just before the start of the second trip where there was this parting of the ways. Paul and Barnabas they split ways over a man by the name of John Mark. Well. They were going to go on this trip, and so with John Mark, or at least Barnabas was, and since they split ways, Barnabas ends up taking John Mark, and Paul took a man by the name of Silas. And the two of them, they connected with a man by the name of Timothy, and they go to Troas. And at one point, they wanted to head east, but the Holy Spirit was stopping them. The Holy Spirit was given the red light, and he actually did this many times, and so these guys, they headed west instead of east. And then at that point, at some point, Paul had this vision. And this vision was at, at night, it came through a dream of a guy from Macedonia. And he's crying out, come over here and help us. And so the, this team, they cross the Aegean Sea and they make their way to Macedonia. And their first stop was a Roman colony. It was the city of Philippi. Maybe you remember that. And, and we talked about this trilogy of three stories. The first part of this trilogy was a gal by the name of Lydia. She was a businesswoman. She was probably very wealthy. She was uh, very influential. And the second part, we met a slave girl. The slave girl, she was demon-possessed. She was annoying Paul. She was trying to connect herself to Paul's message, and Paul didn't want to be connected with with a girl that's demon-possessed for obvious reasons, and so he cast the demon out. Then the third part of the story was a Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas, they're they're beaten for, for preaching the gospel, and they're thrown into jail, but then there's an earthquake, and God busts the doors open. And, and, but Paul and Silas, they're, they're men of integrity. And they could have easily left the, the prison, but they didn't. They stayed there, and they don't escape. And at the end of the story, maybe you remember this, the Philippian jailer came to faith in Jesus Christ. He gave himself to the Lord, he and his whole household as well. Well, then the, the team, they leave uh, Philippi, and they go to Thessalonica. With that, let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 17, verse number 1. And I have something new here I want to share with you. Um, I'm getting old, and so I had to go and get these reader glasses. And so, piece of advice to the young people, don't get old. Uh, just stay young. That's the way to do it. So, verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. It says, now when they had passed through, Amphil- Am- this is a tough one for me to say, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath day he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, meaning Savior, the Anointed One. Verse 4. 
And some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, as did many, uh, as a great number, many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city on an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. These men have turned the world upside down and have, come, and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city, the authorities, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken the money to, as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Let's stop right there. Here's my first point I want us to consider this morning. Point number one. When the gospel reaches the lost, those that are still lost don't like it. You see, Paul and Silas, they're preaching the gospel. I'll say a lot. And it upsets some people because there's a lot of people getting saved. You're thinking, why would people be upset that there are some people getting saved? That doesn't make sense. If you're a believer, that just doesn't seem to make sense to us. But see, when the gospel is clearly preached, there's some that are going to give their lives to Jesus. And then those that don't are going to be upset by it. Okay, you know why? Do you know why people are upset because there's some people that are getting saved? The reason is, is, is in verse number 5. It says they're jealous. Okay, I will say there is a jealousy factor for when those that don't accept the gospel that they're, they're having to deal with. Because there's these other group of people. This other group of people, they're getting saved. They're, they're turning from their old ways. When the people that are getting saved, they're essentially saying, well, what I used to believe, it was wrong. They're saying, I was wrong. That's what it takes to, to come to know Christ as your Savior. You have to admit that you're wrong. Well, if they're people that are being saved, they're turning from their old ways and turning to Jesus in faith, and they're receiving as the, uh, the grace of God, they're saying, I was wrong. And then there's those other people that are not getting saved. They're, they're not believing in Jesus. They're, they're now looking at those people. They're now saying, well, I was wrong. Well, they used to believe the same thing. Okay, so essentially by people coming to faith in Christ, you're telling somebody you're wrong and they don't like it. And now they're jealous and their jealousy is actually driving them to violence. And so this mob forms and they're going to get Paul and Silas and they go to this guy's Jason's house. and They're going to drag him out. They're going to beat him to death. I read that. I'm like, here we go again, Paul. Here we go again. You're about to get stoned for preaching the gospel. Well, if you know what happens, Paul and Silas, they make out of there by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin, and they get to Berea. Let's pick it up in verse 11. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received with many words, with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see these, these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed. Not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. I mean, lots of people are getting saved. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned the word of God, who proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him soon as possible, they departed. So Paul and Silas, they, they make it to um, Berea. And, and as soon as they get to Berea, they make, it, they, they make a beeline to a Jewish synagogue, which is their normal custom. You ever wonder why Paul always does this? That Paul always goes to the, the Jewish synagogue? Just think about it. You know, it was the Apostle Peter that's supposed to take the gospel to the Jews. The Apostle Paul... He's commanded to go to the Gentiles. So if he's commanded to go to the Gentiles, why does he go to the Jewish synagogues first? And here's the answer. I believe he needs help. He needs help in what he's called to do. Because think about these cities that Paul is going to, they are huge. These are massive cities. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of Gentiles in these cities. And here's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to save them all. He wants to save all the people in the city. Those are big dreams, right? Well, if he's going to do that, if he's going to be successful to lead everybody to Christ, well, he's going to need help. And so what he does, he goes to the Jewish people because they have a very strong background on everything that the Old Testament says. These are people that that know about the great I Am in Exodus chapter 3. These are people that know all about the, the Son of Man that, that Daniel spoke about in his book, uh, ch- chapter 7. He knows all about the, they know about the suffering servant, Isaiah, chapter 53. They know that the Old Testament spoke about this coming Savior. And so if these Jews, if they come to realize that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one the Old Testament spoke of, then Paul would have this army of now believers that will go into these cities, or actually already in these cities, and they'll share the gospel, the one true gospel with, with all these people. And maybe even thousands or tens of thousands of people will get saved. Well, here's the application for us. This is how it applies to you and I, okay? We're here now, right? And we're believers, and here we are, we are living in this, this city, the city of Warland. It's filled with a bunch of unbelievers. And if, if you're a believer, now what do you think our, we are, we are supposed to do? We're supposed to go share the gospel. We're to reach into our city to share this gospel message with those that don't know. What we're supposed to do now that we know Jesus is we're supposed to help people find and follow Jesus. What that means for you and I, that means this life is not about the weekend. This life is not about the next fishing trip. It's not about the next camping trip up on the mountains. It's not about your 401k, your Roth IRA. It's not about your kid's sporting event. It's supposed to be about leading people to Jesus. Now, I will say you can still do all those things I mentioned before, but not at the expense of the gospel. Since someone took the time to share the gospel with you and I, now we are obligated to go and do the same. Keep reading. Look in verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And he saw that the cities were full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So at this time, now Paul is in Athens, okay, and he's by himself. The missionary team of of Silas and Timothy, they're going to rejoin him later. But right now, Paul is in Athens all alone. Think about it. He's in a city of roughly half a million people. The city of Athens, the population is roughly Wyoming, okay? And he's trying to save them all. And he's in this big city of, of Athens. It's not really known for its politics. It's really known as being ground zero for the culture of the day, okay? If you wanted to really understand Athens, to understand Roman life, Roman culture is marked by art and it's marked by music and theater and philosophy and very, very much religion. If that's what you wanted to be, if that's what you wanted to find out, Athens was the place to be. And so Paul, we, we know that he is a faithful Jew. He, at least he was before he converted to Christ. And so what he does, he goes to Athens, and he sees this pantheon of of Greek and Roman gods. There's so many gods in the city of Athens. There's a a saying back in the day that says, now picture, this is a city of half a million people, that if you go to this city, you're more likely to bump into a god than a person. That tells us there are tons and tons of false religions, tons of false idols and temples and fake gods and pagan deities. And this is where Paul's at. And he's there by himself. And verse 17 says he reasoned. He argued. He's logically reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogues with the Jews. And also all the devout persons. He doesn't just go to the synagogues. The text tells us he also goes to the marketplace. And he does this every single day. Okay? And you're thinking, well, why is he doing that? Because that's where the Gentiles are at. And the text tells us that Paul is reasoning with some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Well, what is the philosophy of the Epicureans? These are two very different groups of people. Well, the Epicurean philosophy is is very similar to really what we're experiencing today. Okay, what we are experiencing today in today's culture, when we turn on our TV and we're, we're seeing all this debauchery and horrible things, that's exactly what they were experiencing back then. Sometimes, you know, we Christians, we live in this little bubble, and and we think, oh, this is all new. What I'm seeing today has never happened before. It's never been like, like this on the face of the earth as bad as it is now, and that's not true. You know, Solomon, he was the wisest man to ever live according to the Bible, so pretty good source, and when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, there's nothing new under the sun, Okay? Everything that that we're experiencing today, they were experiencing back then. We need to know everything is old school. Okay, Sometimes old school is repackaged as new school, but there's nothing new. And that that is the the religion of the Epicureans. It's a philosophy that's all about pleasure. It's a philosophy that's all about human enjoyment, about satisfying your your earthly cravings. It's giving in to your your earthly, fleshly appetites. It's all about living life with a gusto, right? It's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what the mindset was, because to them, they taught that life was temporary. That life is very quick, that you have to live life while you have it. And so I'm going to call the Epicureans the liberals of their day. And as believers, we don't buy into this, right? 
As believers in Jesus Christ, we, we don't buy into this Epicurean philosophy. The Bible says there's a Christian ethic, and it's not about pleasure. Okay? It's not about your feelings. It's all about honoring God. Okay? It's, it's about honoring God and loving God with, with your body and your appetites. It's really saying no to sin so that we can then say yes to the Holy Spirit. It's about yielding to the power and the control of the Holy Spirit who lives in a believer's life. Now, the Stoic philosophy, that's kind of the other side of the coin, if you will. Well, it traced its ways back to a guy by the name of Zeno. Zeno was the founder of the Stoic school. And he disagreed greatly with the Epicurean philosophy. Because Zeno said, well, if pleasure is the goal, well, then we're no different than the animals. Okay? So Zeno, he, he argued for a very disciplined life. And the Stoics, they really found a lot of common ground with the Pharisees. As New Testament believers, we should be very familiar with the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, it was all about obeying the rules, right? With the Pharisees, it was all about obeying the rules and had nothing to do with the heart. You see, it's for the Pharisees and the Stoics, it's not about this inner transformation, it's not where God is, is transforming them us. So it, it's not about loving God, and it's not about loving others. It's all about the exterior. And, and it's all about being very, very religious. That's what they taught. And I'm going to call the Stoics the very conservatives of their day. So here's a very quick comparison. The Epicurean says there is no God. Okay? There's a lot of people with that worldview today, Right? A lot of our neighbors and the people that we rub elbows with, they believe that today. And I find it very interesting. Sometimes people say, well, I'm an atheist. I I don't believe there's a God, and I don't have a worldview. Well, if that's your stance, if you believe there is no God, well, that is a worldview. And so by default, you have a worldview. But the Epicurean said there is no God, so then the goal of life is pleasure. And that, that they believe that because they believe life ends at the grave. So as believers, I want us to really think about that for a minute. Think about what that means for the individual that lives their life that way. And the, the, think about the individual, that's their worldview. I mean, the worldview that, that, that tells you, well, the next act you perform is as good as life gets. Think how disparaging that is. Because if you buy into this philosophy, if you see life as, well, this life, they're all there is, that there's no designer, there's no creator of the world, then there is no intent purpose in life, then there is no reason why behind why you exist. You see, that worldview of there is no God, it leads to devastating consequences in an individual's life. So we need to have compassion on people that are caught in this lie, this, this grip that this, this life and this next act is as good as it gets. But the Stoics, the Stoics actually believed in God. Okay? They believe that God is impersonal. Okay? They, they believe very similar to what a deist believed. Now, a deist believes there's a God. A deist believes that God created everything, that, that he kind of made the universe and wound it up like a clock and then let it go. So he just removed himself from his own creation. That he's letting the world do its things. Well, with that thought, God is very impersonal. Okay? God is not a personal being. He's an impersonal being. So he is not near to you. That's what the Stoics believed. 
And now take this into fact that there's also Greeks there that, that believe in Zeus. Zeus is the supreme god to a lot of those people in Athens. That, that Zeus is working on his own, own agenda behind the scenes. That Zeus and the deists believe that God is not imminent. That God is not near to his creation. But that's not what we believe, right? That's the opposite of what Christians believe because we believe God is transcendent. We believe that God is, is far and above and beyond our thinkings, that God is actually outside of time and, and outside of space. But at the exact same time, God is imminent, meaning he's near us. And so God, the one true God, he is high and lifted up, but at the same time, he's outside of space and time, and he's a God who's imminent, who is near us. Because we know God is near the brokenhearted. We know that God is near us. That God knows your life, that He sees your life, that the one true God, He knows your needs and He sees your hurts. God sees your brokenheartedness and He knows everything about you. That's the God we worship. That's the one true God of the Bible. Let's keep reading. Look in verse 19. It says, And they took Him, meaning Paul, and brought Him to the Aeropaga, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So the Bible says they took him and they brought him. Okay, that, that I have to understand, that's a really big deal. They took him and brought him to the Aeropagus. Aeropagus is a compound word. It's really two different words. Eros, that is a, the Greek god of war. Okay, and then pagos means hill. So maybe some of your English modern translation says Mars Hill. That's a literal translation. Because sometimes, uh, some of your Bibles or sometimes people will say, well, Paul preached before Mars Hill. This is what the, the, your translators are trying to tell you, that Paul's on trial before like this supreme court of philosophers. There I am, okay. There, there's 12 judges in, in this court and then Paul is preaching before them. He's literally standing. Paul is literally standing trial for preaching the gospel. He's on trial for, for teaching and preaching what he knew to be true. Look in verse 20 and 21. It says, For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what those things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So here's Paul. He, he's, he's preaching to these, these people that worship a pantheon of gods. And he's coming here with something new. Think about this though. If you're a Christian, you and I, we believe some pretty weird stuff, right? If we're going to be honest, if we're going to be transparent, we're a bunch of weird people. Because we believe that God came to the earth through a Jewish man 2,000 years ago. And that man, he is God's son, sent from God the Father, born a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, and then he died on a cross. And then he literally shed his blood. And it's the shedding of his blood that covers for your sins. It atones for what you have done. And then he was buried in a tomb, and then he rose again on the third day. That's what you believe? Hold on, it gets weirder. We believe that he, he, he walked with us and, and talked and ta taught people for 40 days, and then he ascended back to heaven, 
And at this very moment, he sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercessions for you on your behalf if you believe in him by faith. I mean, let's be honest. That's what you guys believe? And if we're going to say, yeah, that's exactly what we believe, well, then unbelievers go, that's weird. Okay? So what we believe is, it's strange to a lot of non-believers. And this is the message that Paul is preaching before the Areopagus. They're, they're learning and hearing this new teaching from Paul. Paul is teaching about the Lord Jesus. And it's weird to them. They're thinking, wait a minute, you think God came in, in the flesh for us, and if we believe this by faith, we're saved? Yeah. They're thinking, it's too good to be true. The Areopagus is this huge courtroom, and these guys are sitting there listening to philosophy all day long, and so Paul is preaching the gospel to them. The, the word philosophy that, that these guys love so much, it's really, it's another compound word. Okay, philo, the first part of that, it means love, and sophia means wisdom. So the word philosophy, it literally translates the love of wisdom. The proper definition is wisdom is the proper use of knowledge. Well, then we have to go down this trail. Well, how do you get knowledge? Well, you get knowledge by reading, by studying, by learning from other people. And so what we do is we collect all this knowledge. Well, then what is wisdom to a Christian? Well, for a Christian, wisdom is when we take this knowledge, everything we've learned, and what we do is we filter it through God's Word. Okay? We take what we've learned, we filter it through God's Word, and then we let God's Word transform our thinking and then when, when God transforms our thinking, it moves us to action. Okay? That is when we apply knowledge through God's word. It renews our minds and leads us into action. It actually affects the way we live our lives. Taking knowledge, filtering it through God's word, applying God's knowledge into our life, that's what it means to be a wise person. To live the Christian life. To see life really the way God sees it. Okay? When God says, hey... That's sin. We agree with him. We, we say the same thing. When God says, that's a righteous way to live, what we do is we strive, we, we try, we endeavor to live life that way. That is living the wise Christian life. Well, man, well, Paul, excuse me, he's a man of conviction. He's standing before the Areopagus and he declares Jesus. He's given a defense of the gospel in front of this, this crowd of Greek philosophers. Look in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I have found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, God is not framed by a religious system. Here's what Paul is doing. He's identifying a problem, if you will. He's saying, hey, you've got so many gods. You've, you've got all these gods. You've got a plethora of gods. And that was very true in, in, in Athens. Athens was a city that's marked by temples, and all the people are, are pushing their religious rituals and traditions on the people. And so Paul says, hey, you know what? I found this altar. I was going around, I'm looking at all your different gods of Zeus and Apollo and, and Mars and all these other gods. And you know what? I found this one, this one um, altar. It was called the unknown God. 
He says, that's what, what, what you worship as unknown. Let me tell you who this is. He says, it's Jesus. The unknown God that you worship is Jesus. So what Paul is doing, he's being, being very strategic. He's being smart. He's referencing this altar that, that everyone in the Areopagus would have known. The people of Athens, they tried to worship every single God imaginable. And what they did, they created one more. You know, just to cover their bases, if you will. And Paul says, that's the one true God. There's only one God, and it's the unknown God. And let me make him known to you. His name is Jesus. You know, I want to be very clear to us here today. When God the Father sent God the Son, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Okay? Jesus didn't come to make a better Judaism. No, he came representing God himself. Jesus came to show us the way. Jesus came to tell us the truth. Jesus came to offer life. And Jesus came so that all of humanity through him might be reconciled to a holy God. And so I say this to let you know that God is bigger than religion. He is bigger than any religious system. Because Christianity is about a personal, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Religion... That's just jumping through hoops. That's just performing some act so that maybe God will like you more. or Maybe God would just not hate you enough to send you to hell. That's the point of religion. It's about trying to earn God's love. It's always trying to do better. But Christianity says, you know what? You can't do better. You, you can't. You can't do better. What you need is God's grace. That's what Christianity says. God's grace is unmerited and it's absolutely undeserved. And it's something that God freely gives to you. You can't earn it. Grace is not something that you achieve. Grace is something you receive. And you receive it into your life by faith. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three. God is not found in a building. Okay? We need to know that God is not found in a building. How many of you, when you're younger... Maybe you heard somebody, maybe your mom or your dad or a deacon or somebody. They, maybe you're running through the church and somebody hollered out, Hey, don't run in God's house. Who, 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 who heard it? You heard it? Yeah, you heard it? I said it. Okay, I'll admit it. I said it. And my wife said it too. When she, she was here, she's not, I've heard it come out of her mouth. So, you know, when trying to control an out-of-control child, I'm guilty. I've said it. But we need to know that God's not in a building. Okay? He's, his, his, this, is not, this is not God. Okay, he doesn't rely inside this building. This is just sticks and bricks. That's all that is. Okay, this is not God's temple. The Bible says that believers, believers are the temple of God. So when you get saved, when you give your life to God, he moves into your heart. So your body, your life, your soul, everything that you are, you become the temple of God. That's why God says, I want you to love me with all your heart and all your, your soul and your mind and your strength, your body. I want you to give me everything. So church is not a place you go. Church is the people you know. Okay, That's what the church is. The Greek word church that we read in our Bibles, it's the Greek, Greek word ekklesia. It means the called out ones. It means the gathering. So we, if you're a believer, we are the church. So it's not where you go, it's who you are. We are called to be the ecclesia. We are called to be the called out ones. So we come here and we gather, we worship, right? 
And so what we do, we serve at Vacation Bible School. We serve in children's ministry. We come together and we do that. That's what the church does. We give together so that we can reach more people with the gospel. That's what the church does. But when we leave this building, again, this is just a building. Brick and mortar, uh, carpet and paint. The, the church goes on mission together. So God is not found in a building. Look in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So that's what Paul is saying. God is not found in a building. And sometimes we get this idea, you know what, i got to go to a building to worship God. i got to go to this place to worship and experience Jesus. No, you don't. No, you don't. Now, God does call us to gather together. The Bible says, do not neglect the, the, uh, the gathering together. So we need to come together. We need to take corporate worship very serious. It is something that God requires us to do. He wants the church to be this community of believers. But at the same time, you can worship Jesus anywhere. You can worship Jesus in the hut in the middle of, the, of Africa. You can go up on the Bighorn Mountains over here. You can worship Jesus there. You can go to the Australian Outback and you can worship Jesus you can worship Jesus in your own living room, okay? Because the church, it's the people. It's not the steeple. And sometimes we get this wrong because then it leads us to think, well, the church is, is about me. The church is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about you. The church is about him. The church is about King Jesus. So really everything we do, everything that we are, everything in life, it's ultimately about Jesus, Everything you do when you leave this place, if you're a believer, it's, it's about Jesus. And so this church, we, we, we try to make it about everything about Jesus. So our children's church, if you wonder, it's about Jesus. If you ever go to small group ministry, ultimately, it's about Jesus. The worship ministry, guess what? It's about Jesus. I really hope my preaching ministry, I hope it's about Jesus. I'll let you decide. It's, it's all about Jesus. Keep reading, look in verse 25. He says, not is he, not, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Maybe some of us need to learn, underline that word needed. Underline that word. Because I think this is something to really help us out if we come to realize that God is a sovereign God. That's meaning that he's totally self-sufficient. That means, you know what that means? It means He doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything in us or anything you've got. But yet at the same time, He desires to use you. He desires to use me. Because everything is made by God. Do this right. Do this little little role play here. Go like like this. (gasps) Do it. God gave you that. That air that just filled your lungs, the oxygen molecules, that's a gift from God. It's made by Him. And it's amazing that now He wants to use you, the same same being that made that oxygen, He wants to use you to reach a lost and dying world. That's amazing. So here's some common misunderstandings that that we have as Christians. Misunderstanding one, we already spoke about it, that that you have to go to a building to worship God. Here's misunderstanding number two. That God needs you to be successful. That's wrong. God doesn't need you. Because picture, that's what God is trying to tell these, these Greek philosophers. Paul is telling these people, 
Listen, God doesn't need your help. And that is totally revolutionary to their thinking because they're people that worship Zeus, that worship, worship Mars. And what you have to do, you have to worship God, and your worship somehow gives God the power and ability to do what he does. That's wrong. That's lost pagan stuff. And I think it may help us to be reminded that God doesn't need your service. That God doesn't need your tithe. Yes, a Southern Baptist preacher just said that from the pulpit. God doesn't need your tithe. But at the same time, He wants us to be like Him. That's why He calls us to serve. God wants us to be like Him. That's why He calls us to give. So God, the, the, the creator of the universe, says, You know what? I want you to be like me. And I'm a giver. And I want you to have a heart of a giver. That's why I call you to give. And I want you to be generous. I want you to be like your Heavenly Father. You know, after all, the the Bible says God is rich, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's a rich God, so He doesn't need your money. He's a God that doesn't need your service, but then He uses your service. He uses your giving. He uses your time. He uses your stewardship to advance the kingdom of God. So when we serve, or when we give, or when we're helping people grow spiritually... What we're doing is we're giving him an expression of our gratitude and our thanksgiving. Because again, God doesn't need us. He is the architect of of human history. And at the same time, he chooses to work through us. We get to get on the deal. And that's amazing because think about it. At this moment where we're at in, in, in the book of Acts... God's choosing to work through these men to to reach the lost. And God at the same time today has the same mission. Just like the book of Acts, it's the action of the church. The church is, the people are going out and doing what the church is doing to reach the lost. And really it's, really it's about the action of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit we read is directing and, and moving these guys to go where He wants them to go. And moving them and encouraging them to say what He wants them to say. And that's how God is working in our lives today. God is our working in our lives so we will go places and so we will open our mouths so we will share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus. And He still wants to use you. And He wants you to reach people with the gospel. Keep reading, verse 26. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way through Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. So what Paul is doing, he's declaring a very, very personal God to these people that believe in an impersonal God. He's saying that this world is not just material. He's saying this world is spiritual too. So the goal in life, it's not pleasure, like the Epicureans taught. And it's so easy to get caught up in pleasure, right? I mean, sometimes it's so easy for us to live for comfort and pleasure and to really allow that to define us. What we do, it's so easy to get, up, get caught up trying to keep up with the Joneses. The Joneses got this new toy, I need to get this, this new toy, and I need to live like them. It's so easy to live like that, at least until the Joneses refinance. So this life is not about pleasure, but it's also not about self-denial either. It's not about denying everything in you and living a life that is just really sedentary. This life is about advancing the news of a Savior, 
This life is about a God who can absolutely change someone's life. This life, if you're a believer, it's about being on mission for Jesus. In the verses we just read, it said, if you seek God, you will find God. Okay? The Bible is chock full of verses that say that. If you seek after I mean, like truly seek after him, you're going to find him. It's not like God is intentionally hiding from people. He's not. Okay? God is actually pursuing people. God is going after those who are lost. But this is what's happening. So many people are running from God. They're not running to God. They're running from God. So in running, instead of running to God, they're running from God, and they're running to philosophies. People are running from God and running to pleasure. They're running to hedonism. They're running to relativism, you know, redefining what's true for you. Instead of running to the God of the universe. Here's my fourth point for us this morning. Point number four. God's plan. It was fulfilled on a cross. So God has built some cultural bridges to communicate the power of the cross into the plan of redemptive history of humanity. God has built these cultural bridges in like we know in the Old Testament as a type of Christ uh, that was to come. You may be thinking, what are you talking about, Pastor John? Well, we all know the prophet Jonah, right? Jonah was a prophet, and he was swallowed by a, a, a great fish. He was in the belly of the great fish. And some people say, that, that's made up. That can never happen. I was just reading yesterday. Someone just got swallowed by a whale off the eastern seaboard. I'm like, this just happened. And you people say it can't happen? Well, it happened. It really happened. Well, God was trying to get the, 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 the attention of the Ninevites because Jonah's a type of Jesus Jesus spent three days and three nights in in the tomb, right? Let me give you another one. If you know Joseph, Joseph from the Old Testament, if you know the end of your Old Testament, there's a guy named Joseph. He's betrayed by his brothers for a few pieces of silver. But, But God raised Joseph up really to bring about the saving of the people. And Jonah and Joseph, they are types of a greater reality. And God gave these types to the Jewish people so they would come to know Jesus. But you know, God didn't stop there. He also gave a type to the Athenians. God built this bridge for Paul. So Paul would come onto the scene and Paul would be able to share the gospel about this unknown God. His name's Jesus. So the one true God is revealing himself to Greek people long before Jesus ever shows, before, excuse me, before Paul shows up on the scene. And so Paul shows up on the scene and says, The unknown God, his name is Jesus. You know, just like God has been revealing himself to the Athenians, God has been revealing himself to the whole world since the very beginning of time, so there's no one without excuse. Read in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. The word of God says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world, in that things have been made, so they're without excuse. The truth is, so many people say, you know what, what about the people that never heard the gospel? What about people that never heard there's a God? There is no people. That, that, that's, 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 a, that's a red herring. Nope, that person does not exist Because the truth is, God has done everything and more so that everyone can know Him. He's done everything you you can think of because He came to this earth. 
And He died for the sins of mankind so that we could be with Him for all eternity. You see, think of it like this. God died for us so that we would live for Him. Keep reading. Look in verse 28. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As, as even some of our own poets have said. For we are in, indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think uh, that the divine as being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, by the art or the imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul is telling these people, he's saying, hey, this God, this this unknown God is the God that we find our very origins in. We find find the, the end of all things in him. Paul is saying, literally in him we live. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul said something very similar. It says, by him and for him we're all created. Then Paul starts talking about repentance, about turning from sins, about placing your faith in Christ. He's talking about a judgment. Did you know there's a judgment coming? There's a day coming that's appointed where everybody's going to get judged. Did you know there's a judge? If you don't know this, let me tell you. The judge has a name. And his name is Jesus. The one that died for our sins, he's going to be the judge of all mankind. Someday the great and small, everyone is going to stand before Jesus for judgment. In the book of Revelation, it tells us there's this great white throne judgment and these books will be opened. Somebody says, hey, Pastor John, what are the books? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me very clearly. It could be the books of the law. It could be a a book of all the times that you rejected Christ. I mean, think about that for an unbeliever. I think back in my life, how many times I rejected Christ before I finally came to know him. If I was judged by that, guilty. It could be there's lots of books. We don't know. But it says the books are open. And I believe the books are there to show very plainly, very clearly, to to prove that unbelievers, they're guilty. And they're going to stand before God. They're going to stand before Jesus. In that moment, there's no hope. There's no last-minute rescue. There's no exit plan. There's a day of judgment, and there's coming. All believers, unbelievers are going to be judged. But there's also the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not really a day of judgment. It's a day of rewards. Because believers, they'll stand before God and they're gonna, we're going to give an account of our life and there's going to be rewards coming for faithful service. Keep reading verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Did you hear what Paul preached? He preached about a resurrection of the dead. That was the message. Paul told these Greek believers there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. By, by the way, if you don't know this, totally unique to Christianity. Nobody else teaches that that there's going to be this bodily resurrection. You know why we can say that? Because Jesus secured it. 
Christ, the Christian worldview says there's going to be a bodily resur- resur- resurrection, that those who are dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul told these Greeks about the resurrection of the dead. So my question for you this morning, ultimately, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Are you going to receive rewards or do you stand condemned? Do you stand condemned like those that are mocking Paul at the Aeropagus? Where do you stand today? Do you love God? Do you love Jesus? Or do you reject? My challenge to everybody is to come to faith in Christ today, to give your life to Jesus. Like many of these men did, they said, we want to hear you again. Because religion's not, religion is about jumping through the hoops, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is about an intimate relationship with the God of the universe that came and died for us. And if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, I beg you to do that now. To look at your life. And as we all look at our life, we can clearly see we're sinners. We've all lied. We've all taken what doesn't belong to us. We've all had murderous thoughts. We've all lusted after somebody that's not our spouse. We're all broken the law. and We're all separated from God. That's why God came, to pay for that. Because of his blood, we can be atoned for it if we come to him by faith. And the Bible says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. If you've never called on the name of Jesus, I would, I would beg you to do that now. Something along the lines of, dear Lord Jesus, you're God, the creator of the universe, and you don't need me, but at the same time, you want me. You want me to come to you. You want me to give you your life by faith. So, Lord Jesus, I give you my heart. I give everything I am to you. Take my sins. Save me. Lord, I thank you for loving me. And I say this in your holy, precious name. Amen.